Two and a Half Admins, episode 164. I'm Joe. I'm Jem. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Let's do some feedback then. Chris writes, I'd be curious on your takes on this article. And the article is, don't use autofill on your password manager. If we cannot trust our password manager, and in particular the password autofill feature, is there a better means, in your opinion, to manage passwords and passphrases? So the problem here is actually not the password manager so much, is the fact that it has to be built into a browser in this case. So a site can end up with like an iframe that has the login and password box and some JavaScript that will auto-submit it and so on. And basically, the password manager can be tricked into auto-filling the username and password box because it sees the domain where the bad guy wants it to see and put in your username and password, and then it'll get auto-submitted. So the point is, you want your password manager to require you to interact with the form and click and select the username or whatever before it fills it out, not just like autofill and click as soon as you go to the website. I would like to point out that I have been warning of this danger for over a decade now and been getting roundly poo-pooed the most of that time. And now we're seeing the actual exploits come up and I'm like, it, this is obviously going to happen. You do not want to tie what must be the most secure single piece of software on your computer directly to what must be the least secure piece of software on your computer directly. It's just a terrible idea. To be clear, I'm not saying the browser is the least secure piece of code on your computer because it's written poorly. There's layer on layer on layer of security mitigation built into a modern browser. The problem is that you're letting it touch the entire filthy internet. So moving beyond that, Chris asks, is there a better means in your opinion to manage passwords and passphrases, which gives me the chance to bang the same old drum yet again. Use Diceware, short version. That's the cartoon you saw about correct horse battery staple, but don't use that one and actually look it up to figure out how much entropy you actually need and how many words you'll need to accomplish that. You will be able to remember a lot more Diceware style passphrases than you think you can. The ones that you actually use regularly will tend to stick in your head. All the rest of them go to password manager. My recommendation, and now I am by far the most paranoid of the three of us on this particular show, I would not have any connection in between the password manager and the browser. I don't even want so much as Control-C and Control-V. There are a lot of issues with that as well. One is that if you're Control-Cing and Control-Ving, you're not building up that memory of the passphrases that you use the most often. So you wind up completely helpless if you're without your password manager. Another is that particularly if you're on mobile devices, there's a whole nother security nightmare involved in trying to make certain that the wrong program can't intercept the contents of your copy buffer. And if you're never using the copy buffer to begin with, you do not have those problems. Yeah, I don't go so far as that. Like I'm, I've still used the password manager plugin in my browser. I just have it configured so that it doesn't put in the password until I interact with the forum and tell it to do it. Also, having to usually have more than one username for a large majority of the websites I'm logging into, so I have to pick which one to log in as anyway. So it's not really slowing me down. But yeah, never liked the idea of it just auto-typing in my username and password and hitting the login button for me as soon as the page came up. Because, no, I didn't mean to do that, or I haven't picked which username I want yet, or whatever. Jim's way is much better. I just have not managed to get myself there. It boils down to, if you want security comparable to what I'm describing, where you use your own memory as the buffer in between your password manager and your application, and what Alan's describing, where he doesn't have to worry with all that, and it's a couple of clicks away, 
well, you can't use passwords and have both. That's when you need something like, you know, the passkey approach that Google has introduced built onto OAuth 2. You, you have to move away from passwords if you want to be able to just clicky click and it's nice and easy and I don't have to type in passphrases. And I learned how annoying Google's thing is when trying to log into YouTube on not my usual laptop connected to the TV at my hotel. Google wanted me to type in a code that I had to go into my phone to get, but you couldn't copy and paste it. And if you switched Windows on the Android phone to the other one to put it in, it closed the one that had the thing you were trying to copy. (laughs) So it works fine if you're trying to do it from your phone to your laptop. But if you're trying to do it from your phone to the other app on your phone, I had to resort to writing it on a piece of paper as a buffer. (laughs) This brings up something relatively unrelated, but I I think it's probably a good PSA. I want to talk real quick about the way I've used Google's passkeys since I started experimenting with them. I have passkeys enabled on most of my devices, but I have not disabled my password logins. Rather than saying, now I have passkeys and I can get rid of passwords completely and yada, 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 I'm actually using passkeys as a convenience on the devices that I could install passkeys on that I use all the time, I don't ever have to authenticate at all anymore. Everything just works and it does so in a secure fashion and it's wonderful. But when I'm somewhere else and I do need to authenticate, you know, in some other way, I don't have to go through all these weird hoops with the cross device authentication, yada, yada, yada. In those cases, I just sigh, hold my nose and type in my passphrase and it works. Depending on your threat model, that might be kind of a, a nice use. You don't have to... You're not getting more secure, but you're definitely making life more convenient on the devices you use the most frequently. I'm in the same boat, and the reason that wasn't working here is because the laptop was specifically pretending to be a smart TV so that it would work with the remote, where you get a a UI for YouTube that you can use the arrow keys to navigate instead of a mouse. And so because it thought it was a TV, it didn't think I would have a keyboard to be able to type in my password. So what you're saying is the security guard said name and business and you lied and things didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. It was just uh, actually kind of amusing that it gives you these instructions to get this data out of your phone, but you can't do that on your phone while doing it on your phone. And it kind of went to the point, the questions I had about this when we talked about Passkey the other week was like, if my phone is the root of trust for this Passkey system, what if I need it on my phone? And it turns out it is a ball ache so far. I'm just really enjoying the thought, particularly that passkeys are a per device authentication scheme to begin with. And like, that's the whole point of them. And you're trying to use it while lying about what device you're on. Just the whole thing just kind of makes me chuckle. It's not lying about the device I'm on. I just, the Chrome on my laptop has its user agent say it's a Samsung smart TV. How's that not lying about what device it is, Alan? (laughs) What the device is, not which device it is. But the point was, uh, it wasn't about the laptop. It was the, the trying to do the thing on the phone in order to authorize the laptop. So your laptop tried to, how are you fellow kids to Google and it didn't go over. Right. But the, the <laughs> problem I had was actually my phone, which wasn't doing that, trying to prove that it was my phone to unlock the laptop. So even if the laptop had been normal Chrome, it would have still acted weird. Jim, you recently had something of an adventure with some rack mount gear. Did I ever. So uh, I took on a new client a couple of months ago, and um, originally it looked like they were going to be one of my standard you know, monthly retainer clients. They get a few hours a month of service included in their bill, and you know, mostly they'll just tick along you know, fine and not need a whole lot of input. And eventually 
They still are going to become that customer, but what I didn't quite realize at the time was just how deep of a hole their former in-house salaried IT person had left them in. So this is now a network with about 1,200 active users on it at any given time during the day that we have no way to log into the router, no way to log into the Wi-Fi controller, no way to log into the Active Directory domain controllers. We've got no visibility into anything, and... (laughs) It was in bad shape. The worst of the issues were usually like right after lunch when, you know, everybody gets back to their desk to work and you would suddenly have just like a wing of the building or a room full of people who are all complaining that they can't get on the internet. And it's pretty difficult to troubleshoot that kind of thing when you have literally nothing but user level visibility into the network. At first, we thought that it was a DNS issue because I also had to deal with the fact that I didn't really have a place to work because the the former IT person had pretty much stuffed the office where the Active Directory stuff was not quite floor to ceiling with e-waste, but pretty close. I pulled a couple of tons out of there before I had some place to work. Once I did that and I was no longer reliant on, you know, just like what my phone tells me when I try to get on the Wi-Fi in a room where people are having trouble... I was able to discover that, in fact, the DNS wasn't really the problem. You know, they say it's always DNS. It's not always DNS. In this case, it was the router. And the router doesn't even provide the DNS. But the router does provide DHCP on this network, which I had to get two tons of crap out of this guy's office to have a place to set a laptop and work so I could actually run dhclient-v and even see where the DHCP request uh, answers were coming from. Once I did that, I could see that they weren't coming from the much maligned antique AD domain controllers. They were coming from the router. The router is provided by the ISP. It's it's one of the ISPs that mostly services enterprises, you know, full fiber, the whole nine. And that kind of surprised me because what I had also seen when I ran that DH client-V is that the device that was providing DHCP was in way over its head. For those of you who aren't intimately familiar with the protocol or with being able to just run dhclient-v on an you know, open source system, what you'll see is the, the flow of DHCP looks like this. Your device issues a DHCP request to the network broadcast. And if there is a DHCP server on the local network with you, then it replies to that DHCP request with a DHCP offer. The next step is, I'm sorry, not DHCP request. DHCP discovers the first step. Then the answer is a DHCP offer of a free IP address. The next thing, your machine needs to DHCP request the same IP address it was just offered. And then finally, before your device can actually take it, the DHCP server has to acknowledge that with a DHCP ACK. Now, this should normally complete in milliseconds, or if you've got, you know, crappy consumer gear, it frequently will take two or three seconds, which drives me absolutely batty. But in this case, we're talking about a a big enterprise-grade router, and I watched it require 12 separate DHCP discovers before it did a DHCP offer. My client device instantly DHCP requested the IP address it had been offered, and then DHCP requested it again and again, and then gave up and went back to Discover, go through another 10 or 12 Discovers, then get another offer for the same IP address, do a request of that IP address for another three times, and then finally, this NetVanta router does a a DHCP ACK, and the device can get on the network. So now I know two things. I know the DHCP is absolutely broken 
in this network, and I know that it's coming from the ISP router over there in the rack. So my next step is to go over to this rack. Now, I have a little bit of history with this rack as well, because the first day I came to this new client, before they were technically a client at all, it was just an interview, I asked them to walk me through their site and you know do a survey, and I come to the rack where all of the ISP gateway stuff is bolted in. There's a half cab on the wall, and I look at it, and I'm like, that looks really cattywampus, and I look closer, and it's held in with a single carriage bolt at the top. And that carriage bolt has backed out of the wall like three inches. And there's not even a freaking backboard. And I'm like, who put this up? The client says that uh, they can get their maintenance team to just tighten that back up on the wall. And I'm like, okay. And the maintenance team did, in fact, do exactly that. And uh, the cab is now bolted to the wall effectively <laughs> on all corners like it's supposed to be and not backed out. However, there's another thing I really didn't like about that rack. And that is that there are about 10 1U devices in this cab and almost all of them are bolted touching. There's no airspace whatsoever between them, even though there's room to have, I mean, you could probably put 4U between every device on that rack of empty airspace and it would be fine. But instead, they're all just smushed together like one giant thing. So coming in there, knowing that this NetVanta is effectively deranged, you know, it, it can't even effectively answer a simple DHCP request. I'm looking for problems in that thing. And I'm thinking I'm going to have to call Segra, the ISP, and make them replace it. But before I do that, I just kind of want to get eyes on it. And so I get eyes on it, and I see that it's bolted together so tightly with the, uh, the ADVA beneath it. The ADVA is where the fiber comes in, and then copper comes out of the ADVA and into the NetVanta, which acts as the router that then feeds the switches, Right. But these two are bolted together so tightly, you can't slide a playing card in between the two of them. So I run my finger around the chassis of this NetVanta around towards the back. And I'm like, that is a lot warmer than I would like it to be. And it's not so hot that I'm instantly like, okay, this is a fire hazard or whatever. But I'm like, this is warmer than I like. Let's see what happens. Now, again, this cab is super densely packed. However, I have a whopping 1U of space above the NetVanta. So what I can do in the middle of the day with everybody working as well as they're able to with this thing half deranged is I just pull the bolt out of one side of the NetVanta and bolt it back in like an asshole, <laughs> mismatched hole. So it's in there diagonally, right? But even though it makes it look like a drunk put it into the rack, now at least I've got a triangle underneath it on one side for airflow and a triangle above it on the other side for airflow. And by the time I can walk back across the building to my commandeered office and check things again, not only is it now getting through the entire DHCP conversation in about five milliseconds instead of maybe getting through it in two minutes, my speed tests and again, keep in mind, I have no visibility really into this network. I don't know how much bandwidth the other 1,200 people on campus are using. All I can see is what's left over for a speed test, right? Prior to, uh, you know, my drunken rebolting of the NetVanta, I was seeing about 60 megabit speed tests. After doing my, my little hack to get some airflow above and, and, uh, and below it, just in the time it took me to walk back to my office... That's gone from 65 megabits to 400 megabits plus, and it has stayed there for several days since. So this has been a real blessing in, in some senses because uh, this was kind of a network from hell, you know, with so little visibility and so many problems. I went in a lot of wrong directions before I could finally get enough basic things cleared away to be able to get my own equipment in there and be able to see something more technical, figure out where the DHCP is coming from, what might be wrong with it, and start addressing it. 
We've had a few more problems at that location since then, still caused by the former IT guy. Like, for example, as I was literally physically cleaning where the servers were in his former office, I didn't realize that the power cable wasn't really plugged all the way into the back of the switch that feeds the domain controllers that are providing DNS. It was just kind of sitting there. And if you so much as touched it, it would fall off and you now have no power to the switch. I didn't notice that I did that while I was dusting it. So I was the evil cleaning lady that took the network down. But the great thing was, although this happened right as I was telling my direct report, hey, good news, I've solved these terrible internet problems. And somebody calls in while I'm there telling her that and says, the internet's down in room, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, what? And I went back over to my office to troubleshoot it. And I look over and I see there's no blinky lights on the switch. So I reach around back, discover what happened and plug the power back in and walk back over and said, they still on the phone? And my direct report says, yes. And I said, ask them about now. They're like, internet works fine. And I said, okay, so here's the thing. This is what happened. But the big thing I want to point out, the huge advantage that we've made is we went from, I have no idea what's causing everything to suck to somebody had a problem. I almost immediately knew exactly what it was and how to fix it, fixed it (laughs) and said, this is fixed. And it was, I just always think it's interesting when you get these fixes that like, it's not something you get out of a training manual anywhere, right? Like nobody's going to tell you, you know, oh, well, maybe these two devices bolt together the rack, you know, there might be a thermal issue. And, you know, how do you tell, run your finger across it and, you know, decide for yourself if it feels too warm? Because technically, these devices in theory are designed to be bolted into a fully populated rack. They all have active cooling. They've got large vents on the side. None of them were blocked. All of them had, you know, visibly fans spinning at the RPMs they were supposed to. In a data center, this would have been fine, but data centers tend to be somewhere around like 55 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit. This was not a data center. This was an office, and the office is at 72 degrees Fahrenheit, and it turns out at 72 Fahrenheit, you don't want to bolt those two devices together so tightly that they're effectively in one chassis. I guess you're lucky they weren't in a wiring closet and just making the wiring closet be 80 degrees Fahrenheit. That was lucky, actually. I mean, so effectively, this kind of was what you're describing. The saving grace is that unlike a lot of those accursed closets, this one actually had not only an AC exhaust, but an AC return. Hmm. So it absolutely was climate controlled down to where every other room in the building was. It was not any warmer. It just also wasn't any colder. And if you want to get that crazy with the thermals on your rack mounted equipment, you'd better be at data center ambient temperature, not human office ambient temperature. Yeah, for sure. Also interesting, just looking at the picture, somebody doesn't know about fiber bend radiuses (laughs) when they just crammed all this stuff together. But I'm also having flashbacks. I love those Ethernet cables with the little booty thing. But do you remember the the Cisco advisory about don't use that in port one of the Cisco switch because the little plastic boot that protects the tab on the Ethernet cable, will press the reset button and erase the configuration of the switch every time you plug it in. One of many, many reasons I have never and will never (laughs) buy a big Cisco switch. Mm -hmm. I don't find them worth it. You can get every last thing that you really need in a much less expensive and weird and proprietary package. And I've just never been a big fan of, let me, let's go ahead and throw an extra grand on there so I can get that name on the plate. Yep, That's just not me. But it's also interesting, you know, a lot of data center cooling, especially on the server side, is all predicated on front to back, right? We pull cold air in the front and we blow the hot air out the back and we can do hot air containment and so on. 
But all these switch type devices need to, most of their front space for the ports, right? Or the Ethernet ports on the switch or the fiber ports on the modem, basically, for the fiber and so on. And so they end up with the fans on the side. But generally, there isn't actually airflow from the side, especially if you're in like an actual data center where it's rack, 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 rack in a row. There won't be side to side airflow. All the airflow is front to back. And so even in a well climate controlled place where the cold dial is kept even extremely cold, it sometimes means that it's not actually hitting the right spot to, to keep the, these devices cool. And so while they're supposed to be able to handle it, oftentimes you do want to keep more space around, especially those 1U devices that tend to get really warm. And I remember another data center I was in, they had very strict rules because they were doing what's called hot aisle containment. So they, they'd have two rows of racks one alternated from the other so that all the hot air is being blown into one aisle, which actually has a roof on it. And they capture all that hot air and that's they feed that into the air conditioner because it makes it more efficient to cool that air and blow it back out as cold. But what it meant was if you had empty space in your rack, they wanted these cardboard inserts put in so that the air would all get forced to go through the machines instead of around the machines to make sure it cooled the machines efficiently. But it meant that these types of switches and so on that try to pull the air from the side didn't have the advantage of having some air going above and below them like you would hope. Because even if you had blank space, the rules of the data center said it had to be plugged with cardboard. Yeah, it's it's essentially a thermos now. Yeah, you, You've got a void with no flow through it, which will rapidly rise to the ambient temperature and stay there. Yeah, all because they want to get all the airflow going through the active cooling of all the servers in the rack, which makes sense. But it does mean that a lot of these switches is like somehow they need to leave. a. Uh, actually, you can see, I think, in the, the top thing in your picture there, it looks like it has a bunch of vents in between the two banks of SFB connectors with the orange fiber cables. And I think you want to see a bit more of that in the design of things like switches to deal with the fact that, especially in a data center, it might be going that way. Okay, this episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. A busy schedule can make it easy to fall into your dinnertime recipe rut. Keep mealtimes exciting with over 40 recipes to choose from every week, so there's always something delicious to discover with HelloFresh. Turn to HelloFresh Market for delicious add-ons and enjoy the season's limited fall flavors lineup. Feast on desserts like apple cider cake with caramel sauce or please a crowd with appetizers like the barbecue pulled pork nachos. And don't forget the mini pumpkin cheesecake if you fancy a little treat. Jim tried HelloFresh and was really impressed with the minimal recyclable packaging and said the pepita-crusted salmon meal was restaurant quality. So support the show and go to hellofresh.com slash 5025admins and use code 5025admins for 50% off plus free shipping. That's hellofresh.com slash 5025admins and code 5025admins for 50% off plus free shipping. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Morgan writes, 
I'm looking for a hardware suggestion for a home router slash Wi-Fi hotspot. I don't need anything too fancy. Previously, I was using the one that came from my ISP and was happy with it. However, we recently got upgraded and I don't have a high opinion of the new one. The new router has a bridge mode, which as I understand it, turns off the router and Wi-Fi part and basically turns it into a cable modem. So connecting and using a consumer router slash Wi-Fi access point to it should not be a problem. Are there recommended brands to use or stay away from? Are there features I should be looking for to have good Wi-Fi coverage? Is Wi-Fi 6 a thing I should be looking for? What about open firmware like OpenWRT? Is it worth getting one that is compatible with that? Can you buy ones with it pre-installed? And then he lists a series of requirements. But I think Morgan might be looking at this wrong. Now you two feel free to correct me here, but it seems like Morgan is looking to replace an ISP supplied router slash Wi-Fi access point with one box, whereas I get the feeling you two are going to suggest splitting that into two very different boxes. Not necessarily. The biggest thing is that I'm not sure Morgan has really outlined the most important requirements very well for for his case, so it's hard to give him the exact best answer. The most important thing to figure out is, can you get away with a single access point to cover your entire space, or do you need multiple ones? Morgan mentioned streaming and television, and if you're going to be streaming video to a device, if you can possibly plug a wire into that device, you want to. If you can't possibly plug a wire into it, you need to do it over Wi-Fi. You really want to have an access point in the same room as that device because that is a ton of data you're moving back and forth. And remember, your entire network is as slow as the slowest device that's actively using it. And if you're streaming, you're using it constantly. And if you're doing it from a couple of rooms away, you're eating up way more airtime than you should. So that's the first thing you've got to figure out. Can I get away with one access point or do I need several? Once you figure that out, if you only need one Wi-Fi access point, you got a couple options. One, absolutely is everything in one box. Just buy a consumer router with Wi-Fi that's better than the garbage that your ISP gave you. Shouldn't be difficult. If you want to get a little bit more technical than that, you can split up the wired and the Wi-Fi into separate devices. You can, you know, maybe do a generic x86 machine and install OpenSense on it for the wired part of the routing. And then from that machine, you plug in a wired access point like TP-Link's EAPs or Ubiquiti's UAP lights. You can just do a single access point if that's enough and use one of these. They're very inexpensive. You still get very high quality, you know, Wi-Fi delivered from them. But again, the question is, is one enough? If one is not enough, well, can you run wires to the other rooms that need access points or do they have to have Wi-Fi backhaul? If you can run wires, well, again, the wired access points are by far going to be your best bet, especially for folks that listen to this show who presumably aren't going to much mind like setting up a software controller to manage all of them or individually managing them if that's the way you would prefer to do it, but you kind of have to keep them in sync. But what if you need multiple access points, but you can't run wires and or don't want to deal with controllers, you know, et cetera? Well, now, unfortunately, you're really looking at consumer mesh. And almost always, my recommendation there is going to be Eero. The big downside to Eero is, yes, again, you have to manage it through an app on your phone. That absolutely sucks. You don't have to convince me of that. I'm right there with you. I hate it. There is no web interface. Really wish there was. However, for less than 300 bucks, you can have a three-pack of those things, and you can just stick them wherever you need to, and there's no need to run wires in between them. And they're very easy to set up and just work. And now dual band APs in a mesh like the Eero, we're not talking about the Pro even, we're just talking about the regular old Eero. 
no, they're not going to be able to service as heavy a load as either, you know, tri-band mesh or especially, you know, wired backhaul, like what we were talking about with TP-Link EAPs or Ubiquity AP lights. But they get surprisingly close to it. I mean, you can run a heavy network workload on a three-pack of Eros, even in a fairly large space. The biggest thing I would recommend that nobody try to do in production is don't try to build your own Wi-Fi access point, you know, with just some random open source operating system or distribution and, you know, a regular USB Wi-Fi adapter or PCI Express Wi-Fi adapter. Or a Raspberry Pi, maybe. Exactly. Can you do it? Yes. Will it suck? Without a doubt, yes. You don't have the right antennas in those things for good connection to multiple devices all the time. You really need to use a purpose-built access point. Yeah, I've, uh, with Wired Backhaul, been in love with the TP-Link Omada setup that I did based on Jim's recommendations. I will mention on the topic of Wi-Fi extenders, don't. They're all garbage. I bought every one of those things that looked like it might possibly even be vaguely decent to test for wire cutter. And uh, the absolute best result I got was from the absolute cheapest little TP-Link piece of plastic garbage at 30 bucks. And the best thing I could say about it is that it very, very, very slightly improved a couple of the characteristics that I was testing for on a busy network and didn't actively cause a negative effect on any of them. Whereas every single other Wi-Fi extender I have ever tested has dramatic negative impacts on a heavily loaded network. It's not because the concept of a standalone Wi-Fi extender is impossible. It absolutely is not. Unfortunately, as far as I've seen, nobody has bothered building a decent one yet. So it, if you think you might need a Wi-Fi extender, what you really are saying you need is multiple access points. And that brings us right back to you need to decide whether you want to wire them or whether you want to do mesh. And if you don't want wire backhaul, then you're going to be looking at something like Eero or Plume. If you're violently allergic to the uh, mobile app control thing, and you've absolutely got to have a web interface, again, I don't blame you. I'm not saying that disparagingly. But if that's a thing that you need and you need mesh, then about your only halfway decent option is going to be one of Netgear's bigger mesh systems. And I do not recommend their cheap ones. They like, you know, RBK 30 or 40 series. You're going to be looking for an Orbi RBK, you know, 52 or 53. And they're quite good, but they do get a noticeably higher number of consumer complaints on the internet. I've deployed several of those things and, and had good results with them. I, I have not seen the kinds of problems that people report in. But there are a lot of complaints about intermittent issues with Orbeez. So keep that in mind when you decide how bad do you really want that web interface. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrs.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.